everybody, and welcome to the last episode of Now and Men for 2023. I'm Stephen Burrell, and I'm here, as usual, with my co-host, Sandy Rexton. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Stephen. It's good to link up with you again. Now, before we introduce our guest, you've got an exciting piece of news for our listeners, haven't you, Stephen? Yes, I have. Yes, thank you, Sandy. Yes, it's a bit of a changing time for me, as I'm actually moving to Australia in the new year, um, as I've got a job as a lecturer in criminology at the University of Melbourne. Um, and I've also found love out there as well, so it's all very exciting, but also a lot going on. Uh, so, um, yeah, this shouldn't mean any change to the podcast uh, but we will take a little break during the Christmas period which will just allow me some time to get my feet under the under the desk in Australia so to speak. <laughs> well congratulations Stephen uh, but as as we know the show must go on so we're <laughs> delighted to welcome Blake Morrison to Now and Men today. Uh, Blake is a poet, he's a novelist and journalist. He's perhaps best known for his trio of family memoirs including the award-winning And When Did You Last See Your Father which came out back in 1993 then Things My Mother Never Told Me in 2002, and his most recent book, Two Sisters, which was published earlier this year. And he's a regular literary critic for The Guardian newspaper and The London Review of Books. Yeah, so hi, Blake, and thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> oh, it's our pleasure. Thank you. Um, yeah, and so we thought it would be good to start, if that's okay, by inviting you to read a passage from Two Sisters, which introduces your sister Jill and your half-sister Josie, and some of the themes that you expand upon later on in the book. Yeah, this is very much setting things up at the start of the book. Um, here goes, yeah. If you're listening to this, my sister is dead. Many years ago, I resolved not to write about her while she was alive, or rather, not to publish anything that I had written. She, Jill, had walk-on parts like a film extra, in two memoirs I published about our parents. That's all it was, the odd looking or passing mention. There was plenty to be said, but not yet. Even if she'd given me carte blanche, the page would have stayed blank. You can't write an honest memoir when the subject is alive. At any rate, I can't. Death is the only permission. After those books about Mum and Dad came out, I was sometimes asked if I'd another memoir in me. No, I'd reply. I write fiction these days because I've run out of family. Once or twice I answered even more facetiously. I don't know if I've another memoir in me, but my sister's quaking in her boots. There's an assumption that to write honestly about someone is an act of aggression. That's the gallery I was playing to. But I felt no aggression towards Jill. Didn't then, don't now. She's gone, that's all, and though there's no retrieving her, I'd like to make sense of who she was and what she became. It wasn't just that she changed over time. She could change from day to day. Drink made it worse, but the origins went deeper. You never knew which you'd get, the kind and loving Jill or her doppelganger, two sisters. I had another sister as well. Josie's a smaller part of the story I'm telling, a half-sister, whereas Jill was full and often full-on. A baby sister, proudly held up to Jill and me, as we stood at a hospital window on the day that she was born, but whose relation to us was never acknowledged. A sister I didn't know was my sister until eight months before she died. Two sisters both younger than I am, and both dead. It's painful to think about that and tempting to let them be. But I want to understand why their lives took the direction they did and why they died self-destructively before their time. I know there's no simple answer, that I'm writing from the limited perspective of a brother or half-brother, that my memories are fragmented and unreliable. Still, I can't not make the effort. With Jill, I can't help making it. What she went through, and what her family went through, many others have gone through too. My hope is that telling her story will prompt recognition, perhaps the solace of commonality too. And that means being honest. The ethics of writing about real people are problematic. Candour can seem disrespectful. But when you grow up with a lie, as my sisters did, it's important to be truthful. 
soft peddling would be cowardly. And the truth isn't malicious. I'm here to commemorate them, not expose. It may be I've another more selfish purpose, self-exoneration. When you're newly bereaved and the death of the person you're mourning strikes you as preventable, guilt is impossible to avoid. Why didn't you meet more, speak more, tell them you loved them, assuming you did? If you had, might you have saved them? My sister's deaths left me feeling neglectful. And when I turned to books for comfort or commonality, I found neglect there too. I hoped to find an author whose writing about a sister, real or imagined, could articulate my thoughts and feelings, whose insights could help me see things I'd missed, whose words could stand in for mine. Low as I was, even the greatest book might have failed to reach me. But I hadn't expected the choice to be so limited. Why did so few books explore brother-sister relationships? In particular, why did so few male authors write about sisters? Did their sisters not matter to them? Or the relationship in general not matter enough to merit inquiry? Brothers writing about brothers, sisters writing about sisters, sisters writing about brothers. There were many examples of those. But brothers writing about sisters? Very few. Thanks, Blake, for that uh, very powerful reading. And there's a lot of things we could pick up there. But uh, uh, first thing is, uh, I thought a key phrase in the reading was, I'd like to make sense of who she, meaning Jill, was and, and what she became. Would you say that was your main motivation for writing the, the book? Um, and did your did your perception, your feelings towards Jill as your sister change as a result of, of writing about her and your your relationship with her? Well, I probably did articulate things that I, I hadn't until I sat down and put it on paper. That's often the way with writing a book. I don't know where I'm going with it, really, but I know there's something I want to explain, if only to myself. And I, I guess the big thing with Jill was that, you know, we grew up in the same house. We had the same childhood. We were only 16 months apart. And yet our lives went in such different directions. Now, was that to do with me being male or female? Was it to do with a different way of us being treated? You know, did, did I get privilege as the boy? Um, how much damage was done when Jill went off to boarding school at age 11 because of that terrible thing called the 11 plus, which she failed and I passed? Um, you know, I, I, she, she was quite damaged in some ways and, and quite self-destructive in the latter part of her life. And I just wanted to understand where that, where that came from, where it originated. And you say at the end of the passage that, uh, you know, uh, there are very few examples of brothers writing about sisters. I, I wondered if you had some thoughts on, on why that should be. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a theme which permeates the, the book, isn't it? The, uh, the, the notion of what you call siblet. Um, <laughs> yes, Siblet. Something about Siblet. I'm a proud contributor to Siblet. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, uh, develop this genre and, and highlight this genre because so many memoirs are, are the vertical kind, you know, to do with yeah. parents, child, and, and how about the horizontal ones, siblings? Siblings are the people that mm. we know for longest in our lives, um, mm. longer than partners and even friends. Um, yeah, and you know, I it was a, just a natural part of, of of grieving, if you like, is that you you go looking for understanding, and you think, well, there've there been brother sister relationships in the past. There must be historical examples I could look to, and there must be written examples in novels and memoirs and so on. And I was just struck by by the lack of them, you know. Mm. Um, and I've, I've put plenty as, as a sort of the subtext to the book, I put plenty of examples of, of brother-sister relations and the different ways in which they can they can work. But I mean, I suspect you know it is it is a patriarchal thing. It is that brothers didn't think their sisters were a sufficient consequence uh, to write about, um, to put it crudely, and um, that you know sisters were were helpers and. Um, quite often played a really key part in lives of 
you know, artists, writers, even politicians probably, um, and yet were never fully acknowledged. And, and that was all part of the of, of a culture where, where men had priority. Mm-hmm. And I wondered also, are there any examples that you found particularly sort of salient or, or insightful in terms of Siblit? Is there anything that our listeners should be uh, <laughs> having a look at? Well, I mean, I think the the, the case of William and Dorothy Wordsworth is probably mm. the best known. Mm. I mean, Dorothy mm. had a huge impact, and in, in, including some would say him, you know, using lines of hers um, <laughs> and 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 uh, appropriating them, um, and you know, her whole reaction to his getting married quite late on uh, was was, I think, really interesting too. Um, I look at the example of J.R. Ackley, who horribly kind of mistreated his sister in, in some ways, although she was difficult, and who was, you know, was nearly culpable in her committing suicide. You know, it was a narrow, it was a narrow escape for which she blamed blamed him. So, um, you know, there, there there are many different kinds of the relationship uh, between siblings, but I think. There was a traditional expectation that the brother was, w- would adopt a protective role. The brother was in some ways responsible for the sister, for the sister's welfare, for the sister's marital status, and so on. And you know that's a very difficult role to yeah. accommodate in, in in the contemporary world. I think that that imbalance where the brother takes responsibility for the sister, mm-hmm. but it is it was interesting to to think about it and look at it in, in examples I came across. Mm. I mean, maybe that takes us back to your uh, relationship with your sister as well. That's a protective notion. I mean, at the centre of the book that you, you've written is Jill's addiction to alcohol. It's a subject which we haven't really uh, addressed on the podcast. And, you know, very often it's it's men drinking rather than women. But I wondered if you wanted to say say anything about, you know, her, her drinking and the, the sort of complex reasons why she was... Uh, yes, I mean, she. I think where we grew up in rural Yorkshire... The pub was the place to go, um, and I think she formed a relationship with her husband to be in the pub. And they both, you know, they were both kind of loners who became lovers, and drink was all part of that. And and things changed when when she had a, children, and she had two, and when he still had the freedom, uh, availed himself of the freedom to go out to the mm. pub in the evening, and she couldn't, so mm. she began to drink at home. It became mm, partly a partly secret uh, activity uh, that she indulged in, and she, you know, and she she hid bottles around the house. She had secret arrangements with taxi drivers who collect things from the off license for her. Mm. Um, she wasn't a terrible drunk. I mean, she was she drank in order to sleep very often. She just kind of knocked mm. herself out. She wanted oblivion through through drink. Um, but it obviously caused major problems in in the family. You know, she had the custody, the care of two two children, and the marriage was put under strain. And 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 my parents, who were living next door, it was pretty bad for them in their in their latter years. So, mm. you know, it, it was a mess. Um, and I and I felt I had to be honest about that in the book, not not to cover cover the mm. cover the truth about the extent of her drinking. Mm. Because you also say, you know, make an interesting comment in the book that men, uh, when, quote, are, when they're roaring drunk, have a license to mis- misbehave, mm. whereas women are stigmatised for similar behaviours. You know, you, you quote the American author Leslie Jameson saying, male drunks are thrilling, female drunks are bad mums. You know, um, <laughs> I mean, that does refer back to what you were just saying, really. But, you know, that sense of responsibility that's placed on, on women for children's um, upbringing, children's welfare... Whereas men, yeah. men somehow escape some of that, don't they? Men escape that, and there's perhaps an extra sort of uh, <clears throat> pressure uh, to do with, you know, if you're a good girl, good woman, you don't mm. you don't drink too much. Um, you're you're the model of restraint, while your male partners can do as he wishes. Um, so yeah, so sort of, you know, the associations of being a female drunk are. Are very damning. Um, mm. There's an imbalance there between male and female. Mm. Mm. And connected to that, you you also say um, at one point, you know, we pitied her, but we also blamed her as well. Yeah, I think it's you really know. difficult when you've got an addict in the family because 
you, you get so exasperated and probably at times impatient and unreasonable because they're so difficult to to handle and um Jill, you know and, and blame is 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 difficult to avoid you know it's difficult not to think this is a failure of will um you know if you tried harder you could get over your addiction and obviously that is an insufficient way of approaching it but it, it you can't help having those feelings sometimes and um people tried you know my parents were living next door they tried she went into rehab her husband used to lock drink in the boot of his car rather than having any any in the house you know efforts were made sometimes of a fairly crude kind but you know an addict is an addict and she 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 tried she had periods of being dry but she she struggled with it and whenever she had a bit of freedom wasn't being overseen overlooked by somebody she drank all the more there was something i found very powerful about the book really because i think it obviously it is a, a widespread social issue really isn't it but it's not something we we do like to talk about very much and the way you talked about it honestly i, I think people will find that very meaningful and well certainly i found it very affecting um uh, yeah and the sensitivity with which you handled that um and, and another issue um which is a kind of bit of an undercurrent in the book is is that of kind of male violence um so for example auntie bt's husband sam took a swing at your dad when he discovered your dad was having an affair with bt um and you make clear that sam had a longer history of violence towards bt or your dad, uh, who kind of uh, locked your sister Jill in the cellar for several hours around the age of 22, 23, after she'd been found to be stealing. Um, and I suppose what struck me most was your attempts to try and understand retrospectively like what had happened in each of these cases, and, and also perhaps the efforts of the adults involved to try and gloss over and hide the reality of, of what was going on. Uh, do you think that's a fair a fair description of that yes it is um i mean in some ways when i think of other contemporaries of mine and their fathers other many other memoirs i've read on fathers and sons my father was not noticeably violent he, i was never hit by him i he once raised his fist to me and threatened to hit me but he didn't um but nonetheless there was a huge undercurrent of violence in the culture and what he did with Jill, as you've mentioned, with the, after the stealing, seemed cruel and crude beyond belief, really. I mean, my mum said it was 36 hours or something that he locked her up for, and I don't know whether she was given food, whether there was light, whether there was water for her to have. I don't know, I don't know the details. All I know is, as a way to make her behave, it seemed such a, a, a primitive, um, a, a horrible method. Um, and you know he had he had a hot temper even if it didn't erupt into physical violence so you know i guess i've always been interested in this uh, one of one of the things that i also wrote as a poet was the ballad of the yorkshire ripper which was about peter sutcliffe mm. and you know growing up in yorkshire not far from him at fairly similar time i'm not much younger than than him um <clears throat> it really struck me you know, when everybody was thinking about murder, what I was thinking about was was misogyny, mm. and how his, it, you know, his picking off prostitutes, um, as they were called, and even though many of them were not, um, was all part of this misogynistic idea of women as evil and needing to be, their evil needing to be stamped and stabbed out of them. Um, and, you know, I felt there were things in him and things in the culture I, I grew up that I wanted to address and addressed in that poem, rather than it being about, you know, the brutality of the murders. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as well, like maybe perhaps a common theme in, in your memoirs is, I suppose, the often kind of hit, quite hidden, unrecognised, but but massively important role that women are often playing like in the family and keeping the family together, keeping everybody in the family together like emotionally, um, but also bearing a lot of the collateral damage, I guess, for the turmoil that's going on in families, perhaps especially from, from men. Um, yeah, is that something which mm. you've always sought to kind of do? Yeah, I mean, yes, because, uh, well, you see, the marriage, my parents' marriage was quite interesting in that my mother had come from Ireland. She was 
the 19th of 20 children. She felt, I think, dispossessed of her name, her home, her religion and everything in marrying my father and making a life in rural England. Um, and she was self-effacing and she allowed herself, I guess, even though I think she was a better doctor, to be to be dominated by my dad, mm. to be you know, persuaded into joining him in a GP practice when she'd rather have been working in hospital, in de <clears throat> deferring to him, in knowing that if she tried to end the marriage when he was having an affair with a friend of theirs, that she couldn't leave and take the kids away because he'd just follow and, and, and try and grab them back. And so she felt, you know, the ground was not firm under her feet and you know, professional, intelligent woman though she was, she was in a subordinate position in that in that marriage. But but she was the one who who held things together at home primarily. Uh, even though my dad was probably a bit more domesticated than than a lot of men of his era. Mm. Yeah, and I guess um, the perspective you offer in in your books as well, perhaps. Do you think it offers a bit of a corrective to any notion that the 50s and 60s was a period of like stable family life? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and, you know, I suppose I'm really conscious of it primarily because of uh, my half sister, because mm. I always suspected from from a, from being. Well, I guess from the age of nine or ten when she was born, I noticed my dad doting on her. And then when I became sexually aware, 12, 13, whatever, um, I immediately suspected she was my dad's child. Um, but she was passed off as a friend's child. Um, they came on holidays with us as friends would. Her mum was called Auntie Beattie as if she was an aunt, not a, and so on. And um, it was... Yeah, it was secrecy, but of an odd, of an odd kind. In that she was assimilated almost within the family, and yet there was a secret at the heart of it all. So this idea of the fifties is this lovely era where everything was so much more wholesome and harmonious. I just find ludicrous. Yeah. We were thinking of, of delving a bit further into your uh, first book now. Um, you know, and when did you last see your father? Um, yes. which you know encapsulates some of the themes and tensions at the heart of family life very well I think so um, do you want to read that piece now Blake and then we'll talk about that this is a this comes um, about a third of the way through the book so uh, yes I think um, I'm, I'm coming up to the age of 12 I think um, something like that anyway here we go after toast and marmalade, my father and I retire to the two tip-back chairs which face out through the sash windows towards the moor. He is checking the share market, I, the sports pages of the Sunday Express, where I stare for hours at the blurred anguish of a backward arching goalkeeper as a shot from Burnley's Ray Pointer, white dotted arrows painted on the photo to trace its path, inflates the net behind him. For me, at 12, the ultimate erotica, the breast-like bulge of a top corner. My mother, having cleared the breakfast stuff, is back again now with two mugs of coffee. Made with hot milk, mummy, smashing. It's my father who says this, not me. All through our childhood he has called his wife mummy, never Agnes, her actual name, which he hates because it sounds drab and old-fashioned. Never Kim, either, the name her friends use and which he persuaded her to adopt, not so much to seem chic and fifties, was it plagiarised from Kim Novak, as to erase her rural Irish past. She has shed her name, abandoned her country and buried her Kerry accent. In return, he calls her Mummy. Until now, it has sounded fine, but at 12, it's beginning to embarrass me. I want to call them Mum and Dad, which is what my school friends' parents are called, but which they think common. And I want them to call each other Kim, or even Agnes, and Arthur. It's a futile ambition. My father will never change his habits. He'll go on calling her Mummy. Glass of wine, Mummy love? long after my sister and I have left home 
He'll call her mummy with increasing frequency once his own mother dies. And he'll call her mummy not just in front of her grown-up children, but in the company of friends, strangers in pubs, even when they are alone. It's your half-term coming up, he says. Hmm. I've been thinking. It's time we went camping. Camping? You know, fathead. Tent, poles. Hmm. Just the two of us, boys together, or men together. I have just had my twelfth birthday. This is what he must mean by men. The thought of a camping holiday with my father fills me with dread. We could go to the lakes, just us. The girls could drive up and join us for a meal out together at the end. Hmm. It's good to get away sometimes, you know. We love Mummy and Gillian, but there are things we're better off doing on our own. No faffing about or worrying if they're cold. You can't imagine them enjoying three nights in a tent like we will. Hmm. Under the stars, fresh air and exercise. Marvellous. I love uh, that extract. That's a uh, rough approximation my dad's accent on <laughs> No, it was very good. It was horribly something. wrong. It was very, very <laughs> convincing, actually. But uh, I, I love that extract, you know. And it, as I say, it does encapsulate so much about, about family life. So, you know, women servicing men's needs, men controlling women, father-son relations, becoming a man, stirrings of youth rebellion, all these kinds of things are in there, I think. But do you think one of the reasons why the book was so successful was precisely because it, it resonated with many readers who recognise sort of points of connection with their own family relations in there? Yes, I think so. Um, very much so. And I suppose also because it was it was an unusually intimate uh, account of a family. I mean, the intimacy was partly because it was describing my father's uh, cancer diagnosis. So we're living through the period just a few weeks, really, between the diagnosis and, and his death. And um, and I guess the whole uh, intimate way I talk about the family life and describe his illness, growing illness and so on, um, was was you know relatively unfamiliar at that time you know in a memoir memoirs have since I think become a lot more popular as a genre but mm. but back then you know though I could think of a book that had come out the year before Philip Ross Patrimony um, which you know had the similar kind of candor about it still it went in the in the UK at that time I think it was a bit un, unusual and that that was one of the things that that resonated. Yeah, and it feels like your father represented perhaps a particular kind of type of white middle class British masculinity of the 1950s, 1960s. So one which is perhaps quite patriarchal, controlling, traditional, practical and emotional, you know, these being some of the archetypes of masculinity at that time. Um, but of course, the book was successful, not just in the UK, but in many other countries as well. Um, so did it surprise you that the portrayal of fatherhood that you presented did find um, such a ready audience elsewhere. Yeah, no, absolutely amazed me. Um, <laughs> I can remember going to uh, Damascus, a British council trip, and somebody being so struck by a reading I did, they said, I'm going to translate the book. And so it came out in Arabic, and you wouldn't necessarily assume <laughs> there would be the, you know, the same kind of stereotypes that people were responding to. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, I think you're right. My father was, was a classic almost stereotypical father of of the period he he had been in the second world war he'd had a very gentle war compared with many men and he also when he when he came out of it uh, unlike most men he talked he would talk about his wartime experiences you know fairly gentle though they were compared with many people's um but equally you know he'd lost his 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 sister's husband had been killed he'd, he'd had friends killed you know, he'd been through it for three years or whatever. And um, I think one of the things was for that generation of men was to come out of the war having survived with what you wanted to do was create your own family, have your own setup. Not You didn't have great ambitions to go around the world and travel. You'd done that and during the war probably. And, you know, it was like this amazing piece of luck and privilege that, you know, you could, you'd survived and you could start a family. There was a kind of, I think utopianism is wrong, but, you know, if you think the welfare state and all that was created in the late 
40s, there was a period of optimism. We've been through the worst and now we're going to build a better mm. society. Um, and, you know, conservative, though my my dad was in many ways, he was in on the in, in, inception of the NHS as a local GP and he was part of all that kind of progressive forward movement. And, you know, it was a very, a very interesting generation of men, I think, uh, who'd gone through that. Mm. And you've said that when you wrote And When Did You Last See Your Father that you thought that the kind of father-son non-fiction genre of books was something of a kind of empty field. Um, but last year you wrote a piece for the Guardian newspaper, which we'll share in the show notes of the podcast, about a, a number of books about fathers and sons. So, yeah, do you have any feelings about this kind of dad-lit? <laughs> are, are there any particular authors you would recommend listeners to read there on, on father-son relations, apart from your own one, of course? <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I deluded myself. Uh, that there weren't many uh, fathers on my Ignorance was a great help because it made me think, oh, I'm doing something new here, writing a book about my dad. Um, but there had been a book I mentioned the year before, Philip Ross, Patrimony. There had been further back classics like Edmund Goss's Father and Son, like J.R. Ackley writing about his father. Um, and really, the more I looked, the more... I saw that there had been many books in this field and it continues. Um, you know, um, I mean, if you were thinking about a younger generation of men and where they might um, find some connection in a father-son memoir, they might, they might look at something like um, Charlie Gilmore's Featherhood, which is about becoming a father but also looking after a bird. I'm trying to remember whether it's a jackdaw or a magpie or what it is. The main kid's a magpie. Anyway, he's he's responsible for a little bird, and he's also becoming a father. And uh, his own relationship with his father, Heathcote Williams, is part of the story. So I, I, I but you know, there are there are so many. Kafka's letter to his father, uh, Jonathan Rabin, the late Jonathan Rabin. You know, because he only died fairly recently, but his his memoir of his father came out this year. Uh, uh, John Burnside, there, there are so many, really. Mm. Mm-hmm. One transition that you describe very eloquently in the book is, is in alternating chapters. It, it's um, your father moving from being a sort of larger-than-life, in-control, active patriarch to being diminished, dependent, passive, you know, an older man, really. Um, I mean, it feels like you spent quite a bit of your life trying to escape his influence, but... At the same time, at the end, you come to terms with his his imperfections, and you 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 embrace who he was. Is that is that a fair summary of of how you see the development of your relationship with him? I mean, yeah, I think it is simplistic, but <laughs> no, no, I think it's it's fair. I mean, you know, I was typical of my generation, perhaps most generations of younger men. If you want to escape home, you want to escape your parents to their influence and example, and be something else, be something different, and because. My dad would have loved nothing more than for me to join the family practice, be a doctor. And I'd gone off and become a poet and <laughs> English degree and PhD. Um, I'd rebelled against what he wanted. And I thought I'd moved a long way away from his life and the kind of person he was. Um, and then suddenly at 75, he's... Um, He's vulnerable. He's ill. He's um, the thing that I never expected to happen, that he might die one day because mm-hmm. he'd seem godlike and invulnerable, was happening. And I had to see him in a different light as um, as frail. Um, and it was a terrible shock and a terrible thing to come to terms with. Um, you know, that I was so naive in my, my late 30s still to assume he'd be around for a lot longer and then realizing he wasn't going to be. So um, there was certainly that kind of development and transition in the book, and I think a lot of people would recognise that, that the impatience we have with our parents, and then if when we become parents, it begins a process of being more understanding of them, and then when they die, uh, the, something else happens there too. Mm. And one thing that's so noticeable about your writing is the sort of sensitivity and force of your descriptions of, of feeling and of emotion. Of course, Traditionally, men have tended to downplay 
the personal, the emotional, in order to fit in with sort of prescribed notions of masculinity and the stereotype of the inexpressive male and so on and so forth. That's still still prominent in some ways. But your approach seems to stand in contrast to this and you you express and interrogate emotion with great honesty. Um, given your father was pretty guarded, I wonder where you think this capacity in you emerged from? I mean, was it your mother's influence or was it just conscious revolt as you maybe suggested or moving away? Poetry and literature, what, what, what were the factors that maybe a bit of all of them I, in some ways my mother was more guarded than, than my father um, my father could be quite emotional actually I remember him more or less crying when I went off to university and um, uh, compared with most men of his era I think he was quite emotional um, so you know in an odd way he might have mm. had that influence on me I think certainly the poetry I read, you know, if you like confessional poetry, the the, the stuff associated with Robert Lowell, Sylvia Plath, John Berryman might have had uh, an influence. Um, also, simply, frankly, it was the emotional state I was in in, in the aftermath of my dad's death that I, I was unguarded. Um, I, um, my normal censoring devices were gone I mean I'd, I'd been a poet I'd published a book the first book of poems was called Dark Glasses and one of the reviewers said said you know yeah you don't you don't see the eyes and you don't see the heart I was kind of restrained as a poet and and then found writing the book in almost blind in that year after my dad died um, mm. it was you know, it was inevitable part of grief and loss and trying to bring someone back to life, probably, that, um, I, I, you know, that I was, I was going to say all over the place, but I was, I was all out there in much more than I would normally be. Mm. Um, you know, I didn't, it all happened fast and I didn't have time to think, oh, I better cut that passage, oh, I better leave that yeah. out, that's a bit too unguarded. I didn't have that. No. That wasn't going on. Because in a way, you know, all your books and memoir are actually, you know, they're about your family, but they're also about you as well. And, you know, I think I read something you, you wrote somewhere where you said, well, Virginia Woolf said a successful memoir, you know, has something about the person to whom things happened. Yeah. It, I, it has to. And if you leave that out, then there's no sort of thread to it. And mm. so... No, you know, you're, the, seems... you're the narrator and, and you had the relationship with these people. So I always mm. thought the book about my dad was about my dad, one about my mum, mm. one about my But actually, you know, my relationship with them is an inevitable part of that. Mm. You do write about yourself. And there's also something else that goes on with me, which is I think I'm exposing them in some way, in a way that some people mm. find uncomfortable, mm. I suppose. Mm. Um but I think I'm embarrassing myself too. I'm showing, mm, mm, mm. I'm exposing myself, and that's, you know, that's fair, fair, fair. You know, you're playing fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah. You can't, you know, and also, frankly, if a narrator, you know, if a narrator is a goody goody and everybody else mm. is, is is sort of flawed or wicked, um, mm. or if or they're a blank sheet, you know, they, they, you don't get to know them, then you're not going to enjoy the book or like like the book. Mm. So, you know, you have to be that kind of flawed narrator, I think. Well, I was just thinking that, you know, through the three books, you're, you're kind of tracing your own journey as well, in a sense. I, yeah, I, th I suppose that's true. Um, I always, I, I kind of thought my rule was, I'm not going to come into this except in relation to the scenes I'm describing, mm. relating to these three other people. But I'm probably kidding myself and revealing more of myself than, than I realise. I mean, you know, it's a bit of me feels, what the hell? You only have the one life. <laughs> why? What? What? Why? Why do I have to be guarded? You know, what? What's? What's? What's gained by it? Also, of course, you you do keep things back. You're not on a, you're not on a, a live show. You know, you you have, you can control it. You control exactly what it is you 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 let slip or you. I mean, not you're not letting it slip, are you? Actually, choosing to reveal this um, rather than being harassed into. Telling stuff that you don't want to really tell. Mm. Yeah, it felt to me like maybe across the three memoirs, maybe that one of the reasons driving you to write them might have also been about trying to process and deal with the grief 
of of these of your family members dying and um yeah and, and i wondered um given the focus of our podcast do you think that men and women grieve in in different ways um in your experience yes i i i do and you know i i hate it, it if it sounds stereotypical but yeah i think they do i mean i think from what i've seen of men and women grieving women are more open about it they don't feel they have to that it's something that's forbidden or awkward to de- to declare emotion um whereas men the ones i know anyway put it that way um don't take don't tend to talk about the emotional impact of of a death or of loss and you know that there's still there's still that difference about women being more more open emotionally. I mean, huge generalisation, and you know, doesn't apply to all women. And some men are are vulnerable and confessional, but you know, in general, I'd say there is still that difference. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think a lot of work has been done to try and encourage men to feel they can that it's not some betrayal of masculinity to talk about your feelings, mm-hmm. but there's still it's still there that that kind of fear or inhibition mm. you know let's talk about the sport mm. let's uh, let's talk about other stuff not mm. not this mm. i think one, one revealing little anecdote in your um and when did you last see your father book was about you keeping your father's pacemaker after his his death you know which some might think well why would you do that but in other way you, you've kept the medical part of him of course as you said he you know he was a a GP and in another you could say well you kept what what made him tick <laughs> you know if I can yeah. put it that way so yeah. so h- how would you explain your desire to keep this particular piece of him well I suppose it was inside him uh, that's one thing it's you know you, you can't get much more intimate and personal than a thing that has been in the body of another mm. person um uh, you know, in truth, I kept a lot of his stuff. You know, I went on wearing his clothes <laughs> for quite oh, a wow. time. I still have some of his clothes. Uh, I keep the pacemakers in this room on the shelf as I speak. Um, and I've only slowly let myself um, give away, you know, his doctor's bag and various, you know, an RAF coat and things that, you know, I treasured as a way of keeping him, trying to keep him for years and years after his death but you know it has been thir- over 30 years now and I- I've begun to let go a bit because I've got to get let go of my own stuff too <laughs> yeah well there's that there's too time to <laughs> declutter a bit your house gets a bit crowded otherwise doesn't yeah. it yeah I fa- certainly finding that yeah and I'm certainly given that I'm moving to Australia soon I'm finding this as well you know I'm having to relinquish <laughs> so much stuff which is actually very painful isn't it to let go of these things it is and and my dad was a hoarder I mean he, he you know I in a way, I'm hugely in his debt that he was because one of the things mm. he ordered was mm. the great box of letters that mm. he and exchanged during the mm. Second World War when they'd first met and they were long before children came along. And, mm. you know, it, they were amazing to read after my mum died mm. Uh, um, mm. because there was detail about days they'd spent together or, you know, their thoughts, their feelings, everything was all there on paper in a way. Mm extraordinary from 1940s whereas something i'd done last week i'd completely forgotten about mm. <laughs> there was this record day by day so and that was him hoarding and it um i don't have the hoarding instinct as much but it is hard to let go of stuff mm. and those letters formed the basis of your second memoir didn't they things my mother never told me exactly there were, yeah. there were you know mm. so for instance when um when when I wrote the book about my dad, I mm. I, I was worried what my mum would think, of, mm. of, and I vowed that if she hated it, I'd put it away. And I was worried that about revelation of the affair, even though I'd changed names. And she said, "Oh well, I'm really sorry you have to put this in the book, but what the hell? I'll just tell people you were sexing the book up." By, with, with all this stuff. And um, and then she said, and I was worried about her the details of my dad's cancer and so on, but she was a doctor, so she didn't bother with that. But she, one of the odd things she, she said wouldn't, could I change or cut, was a, a passing mention of her being a Catholic. She said, oh, you know, not many people know that. Mm-hmm. And, it, and I thought, well, okay, fine, um, I'll take that out. But uh, when I 
read through the letters uh, that my parents had exchanged, I realised what a big deal it was that mm. one of my father's classic English middle class, Middle England prejudices and his family's was against Catholics. And he, he, my father had to hide from his father for a very long time that this Irish woman he was courting was a Catholic. Mm. Um, and it was extraordinary that um, that this was such a big deal in the middle of the 20th century. But many people yeah. have have told me similar stories, uh, having read, read the book, um, in their families that um, um, about you know the the, the, the ferocity of anti-Catholic feeling. Yeah. And um, again, it was only thanks to my dad's hoarding that uh, I was able to read those letters and and, and mm. see what a big deal it was. And is it right that you, you didn't know that she had 19 siblings until no, I didn't, later no, on? No. I mean, that's rather extraordinary, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> yeah, it was extraordinary. And again, you know, if we think about the 50s and, the, you know, being nostalgic for the 50s, that was another secret. Mm -hmm. She did not want people to know what huge family she came from because that meant Catholic. Mm. And, um, yeah, um, I, it was only when I went over to Ireland after a death and met met a, one of the relations who showed me the brought the list out of yeah. of the twenty of the twenty children. Wow. So again, you know, there we were, the classic English family with the, the two children and dogs and so on. But my mum had been in this extraordinary setting. I should say that some of them died and she was another way of putting it she was the 12th of 13 because seven of them died in childbirth or soon after but um still one thing we wanted to ask about as well was um to what extent do you think feminism has shaped your kind of personal development and your writing because you say almost as an aside in two sisters that the authors you discovered at university like Jermaine Greer Kate Millett Andrea Dworkin kind of changed your ideas um, in a way which I think is kind of, you know, is clear in your writing, right? Um, but, but perhaps until that point, perhaps you've taken male dominance for granted. So, yeah, could you say a little bit about how that change took place for you? Um, yes, I think I did. And I think the whole, the whole culture that I was growing up in, everything from nursery rhymes through to films, um, you know, was affirming and perpetuating male dominance, um, and to some extent, male violence. I mean, I remember there must be quite a number of 50s and 60s films where you see a man hit a woman, uh, which you would never see on the film today, but then it was far more prevalent in the culture too. Um, and I think, you know, when I think back to, to girlfriends and the adolescents, um, you know, I'm afraid the, 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 the kind of... the chief belief really in my amongst my male at this male grammar school I was at was you know the girl you you try and you, you try and get off with her and you try and have sex with her and she will not want to have sex because she's a girl but also for fear of pregnancy and so on and so you know you try and get around her you try and um cajole her into a sexual relationship uh, after which, once she's had sex with you, you dump her. That seemed to be the culture then. And there were all sorts of very dodgy ideas involved in, in all that, uh, about female sexuality, about, you know, men and the power of men. Um, and I was growing up with that. And I may have instinctively taken against it, but I think it did take reading feminist texts and... The female unit, I remember that coming out. I remember because I was at Nottingham University and I was studying D.H. Lawrence and then I read the, the Kate Millett book, Was It About Lawrence? And, and so on. You know, that all well, that was changing my ideas and I think a lot of men at the same time as me um, through through the cultural change, also through the women who were with, who were, who were, who were, who were rejecting uh, that kind of setup. Um, you know, they were young, they were opinionated and they weren't going to take the shit that their mothers had taken. So all that combined to to have an influence, I think. And it was, yeah, generally a feminist kind of influence. Mm -hmm. 
at the same time, I don't want to make myself sound like some saintly person because I think my setup in the marriage was that my wife had more a much bigger role domestically and in 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 childcare. I did I'd say I did a lot more than than most of the men I knew of my age in around around home, but I was still doing less. Whereas I think my daughter now with her partner, it's a pretty equal. Um, sharing of of, of 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 burns and responsibility, like they each have a day off a week to look after their small child, um, and then it's and they each have four working days and one day where they're looking after and then the weekend together and so on. So mm. they've tried to do it on a fifty fifty basis. Mm. And obviously, poetry, literature has played a really important part in your life. I mean, do you think that these things can or 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 do play an important role potentially in, in shifting a, a young man's ideas about things like masculinity, gender relations, being a man? And if so, do you have any particular books you would recommend for, for young men out there, perhaps looking for a Christmas gift or something? Uh. Oh, God. No, well, you, I'm going to turn to you and oh, suggest that, that you suggest some books um, for young men. I mean, I, a lot, you know, I think of my youngest son, um, I don't think he'd need such books now. I mean, he's thoroughly sort of feminized in his ideas. You know, we, his parents are the backward ones now <laughs> on lots of social issues. Um, I I do think, to go back to your question, yeah, I do think that poetry, literature, the stuff I was reading had a big impact. Um, coming to terms with D.H. Lawrence, and who went through this very patriarchal period of wanting male supremacy um partly when he was in australia that contributed to it but in other, in mexico as well and so on it was just a period he was going through i thought that was really interesting to come to terms with that because you, you know the, the the young lawrence and the poor morale in sons and lovers seems you know a, a well not a feminized young man, but definitely in touch with feelings and, you know, not, not not a traditional masculine construct. And yet then Lawrence went into this big thing, pro-masculinity. So that, that you know, he, I did a thesis on Lawrence and I think that mm. <clears throat> that also had an, an impact. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think probably also studying literature at university, um, there were some there were some guys... Um, doing an English degree at Nottingham. One of them um, climbed Everest later. One of them died climbing, um, but mostly were women. And now if I, I went to a publisher's party the other day and, you know, there were about, I don't know, half a dozen guys and a mm. hundred women. And, mm. you know, it's sometimes you think literature is the female form. I mean, that's, you know, the people publishing it, people writing it, my all the people I'm involved with really... Mm. In, in writing are, are, are women um, and that's been the case for quite a while you know uh, female agent was first female publisher from the beginning and so on yeah. so I think all that has an effect for sure mm. even if we're still you know undeniably male yeah um, Oh, well, I'm sure we're very, very glad that you've been flying the flag for men writing about these more mm. personal, emotional issues mm. for, for many years. I mean, I certainly know, you know, I, I read, I first read your, when did you last see your father, uh, when it came out, but I read it again in preparation for this. And actually, I saw quite a lot of different things in it this time. And of course, in the interim, in the interim, uh, my parents have both died. And so some of the things that you talk about, about that, you know, the transition to older man um, status, you know, and being in hospital and all that. Uh, well, I've now I've now seen that I've experienced that, and so I have different points of connection. So, so if I was going to make a recommendation, I'd say to mm. <laughs> say to people of my of my age, actually middle aged men, you should be reading this as well. You know, mm. um, it's not just an issue for for young men. Um, mm. uh, middle aged men, older men can can also get quite a lot from from literature and from some of the exploration that you've you've done. So, thank you so much for that. Mm. No, thank you for the recommendation. Yeah, <laughs> into the world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And to read all of your memoirs, because I also think it's so important and I think it's so great that you do reflect on your relationships with women and the significance of those, because we, we just don't see men talking very much about that, I don't think, do we, as as you've highlighted. So, so no, uh, yeah. yeah, I suppose uh, two of the three books are about women, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. The three memoirs are about Absolutely. women, mm. um, yeah. even though um, 
my father remains, you know, the the large the large figure in many ways through mm. through all three of them. But they are predominantly, yeah, yeah, way towards women. Mm. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It was great to to hear yeah. your readings and to talk to you and to explore some of the issues that you've yeah. been thinking about working on for so long. So, so thank you very very much. Yeah. It's great. Well, Stephen, I, I feel as if I need a bit of time to sort of process the whole range of issues that, that Blake brought up with us. Uh, you know, there's so much depth to that conversation, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, no, I, I mean, it's, it's a bit like his books, really, isn't it? You kind of go through a whole roller coaster of experiences and emotions. And it's very hard not to think about the connections to your own life. Um, but no, I, I think it was, yeah, I'm really grateful to him for sharing everything he did with us and I, and I do think it's very interesting that he's written a book about his his two sisters um because I think first of all I suppose you know sibling relationships maybe we don't actually talk or think that much about them and the influence they have on us and the influence they have on on men's lives and on masculinity and and how that's constructed um you know if I think about my own life you know I have one older brother and he's had a humongous influence on me in my life and I'm sure he will continue to do so for the rest of my life and obviously that is such a formative relationship isn't it in terms of masculinity um but I and then I imagine the dynamic must be very different if it's a if it's a brother and a sister and perhaps for example that could give some men more of an insight into women's mm. everyday lives and experiences and some empathy there. Although Blake in his book does provide examples as well of some quite mm. toxic mm. relationships mm. there as well. Um, but, uh, but, but fundamentally, as he points out, this is potentially the person, if you do have a sibling who knows you, who you know for the longest. So it's a hugely um, important pivotal relationship, isn't it? And, and you have some siblings, I think. Yeah, you, it's, as well. it's true. I mean, I've got two brothers and, and a sister, so, you know, um, yeah, I could certainly connect with some of the issues he was raising there. And it also made me think about that uh, book that we wrote with Nicole and, and various others, you know, about how men came to take action against violence against women. Mm. And and one of the mm. key uh, points mm. in there was about relationships with, with siblings or, or with women, should yeah. we say. So mm. mothers, sisters, mm. girlfriends, and the impact they mm. had on, on uh, young men's perceptions and yeah. upbringing so you know it does connect mm. with the sort of the the sociological literature as well in that sense mm. but uh, mm. um, yes and I can't help but think that the re close relationships with women that Blake clearly had is one of the reasons why he is so perceptive and skillful and sensitive about emotion and, yeah. and his ability to, to yeah I mean that's, that's well it. possible I think he did say that but at mm. the same time he mm. also said that his mother was perhaps more guarded than his his yeah. father so yeah. Yeah. you know yeah. Um, yeah. we're not just sort mm. of ciphers for this stuff we, we are Absolutely. we are real people Absolutely. as well but yeah. um yeah. But I was struck mm. uh, too about, uh, by you know the incredible sort of process of unearthing and making trying to make mm. sense of family relationships that he's gone through over this mm. extended period you mm. know um and uh as you said you know I, I find points of connection with that too you know and mm. as i i said in the um the interview that you know when i first mm. read and and when did you last see your father uh my parents were both alive but actually i read mm. it recently for this interview and mm. they died in between and so i i connected mm. in a different way and and felt myself being part of that sort of transitional process which he went through mm. um mm. and I th also thought it was interesting that he doesn't he in the end he says you know th this is this is not a process with an end so I picked up a um there was a little passage which I thought I'd read from two sisters where mm. he effectively mm. says that you know towards the end he says mm. the point about revisiting the past is that you find new things each time you go there things you missed or didn't understand or failed to see the significance of, which as you get older, you begin to grasp. If I'm addicted to the past, I tell her, and he means his wife there, it's because it hasn't passed. I'm still there, still working things out. And in a way, you know, we're all doing that. And maybe maybe particularly so towards the ends of our lives, really. We're trying to make a sense of who our parents were and who we are in relation to them. You know, and I, I'm sitting here, I've got trunks of of stuff sitting behind me mm. you know and old photographs mm. and whatever uh you know mm. and there, there's part of me thinks well that's a whole load of lumber you've just gotta you've gotta move on <laughs> but I, actually mm. talking to Blake you think you know there's so much so much history so much uh, uh mm. material there that that you just can't mm. um uh 
be rid of that too easily. And, and in a way, we, we all mm. need to process that too. So, yeah. so yeah, it's it's powerful yeah. stuff. It is, and I think the, his books actually are a really great way of helping us to reflect on our own histories and lives and childhoods and families, isn't it? So I would heartily recommend everybody to read them and, and also check out the film of And When Did You Last See Your Father with Colin Firth and other great actors yep. as well. That's really good. Yep. Um, but that's probably enough for today, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, I think it? so. <laughs> yeah, so as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we will take a little break now, but we'll, we'll aim to be back with our next episode in February. Um, and in the meantime, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. As always, do check out our previous episodes if you haven't yet done so, and share them with your friends and family and colleagues. And, um, yeah, have a lovely festive period. Yeah, happy Christmas to all our listeners. Yeah, happy Christmas. And, and do contact us, at, as always, at nowamen at gmail.com if you have any feedback, especially positive feedback. But any feedback's welcome. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Bye for now. Bye-bye.